And if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Genesis 22. If not, you can grab a Bible from right in front of you, or the verses will also be on the screen. But welcome to week two of a series that we are calling Jesus in the Old Testament, where we are walking through the Old Testament and seeing where Jesus appears and how he appears in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. And if you were not able to catch the sermon last week, I want to encourage you to go back and catch it either online, YouTube, or our, our podcast, and just give it a listen so that you can kind of get the background, the foundation of the series and kind of where we are going. And listen, I'm aware that there are many Christians who view the Old Testament as intimidating, or some view the Old Testament as irrelevant or even evidence of God's wrath and judgment or a long, boring history of people who are no longer with us. Yet, far from that, the Old Testament prepares us for the New Testament, or more precisely, Genesis through Malachi point us to Jesus. He's the point of the Old Testament. The overarching message, even of the Old Testament, is that Jesus was coming. Without Jesus, the Bible would just be another, another key or another attempt to earn our way to heaven. As I said last week, Jesus appears in the New Testament in three main ways. The first is through prophecy. We saw the first prophecy last week of Jesus given in Genesis 3 that he would be the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And we'll see more prophecies during our, our time in this series. But prophecies of Jesus' first coming and second coming in the Old Testament. Second is through patterns and types. And we're going to talk about that, more about that in just a second. And then third, we see Jesus presently in the Old Testament, where Jesus literally shows up, whether in angelic form as the angel of the Lord or in bodily form, where he shows up and and we're going to see that as well. But this morning we come to a type of Christ, which is a person or event in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or event in the New Testament. And when we say that someone is a type of Jesus, what we're saying is that that person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that, score, that corresponds excuse me, to Jesus' character and actions in the New Testament. Today we come to a very familiar story, a story of faith tested, a story of sacrifice, a story that ultimately points to God's provision for us in Jesus. And we're absolutely going to get to Jesus. We're going to lift him high, but in order to do that, we have to take on a familiar text. And we're going to take this on, we're going to interpret it, we're going to apply it, and then we're going to behold Jesus in it. But I want, you to be, I want to begin by thinking of, thinking of this. Think of the test of all tests. What would that be for you, the test of all tests? The story has been told of a college student who stressed all semester in anticipation of the notoriously difficult final exam in his ornithology class. You know ornithology, right? Most of you do. The study of birds, in case uh, you did not know. But having made what he considered to be a huge ultimate effort for this exam, he was absolutely dismayed when he walked in the classroom to take a test because instead of the multiple choice essay-based test that he was expecting, there were no materials at all, no test materials, just 25 pictures on a screen. And not photos of different birds in all of their brilliant colors, but only pictures of birds' feet. 
The test was to identify all 25 birds by their feet. To which the student exclaimed, this is insane. The professor said, it must be done. This is the final. The student said, I'm not doing it. I'm walking out. The professor said, well, you can walk out if you want to, but you will fail the final exam. The student said, well, go ahead and fail me. This isn't fair. I'm not doing it and started walking toward the door. The professor said, okay, then you have failed. Tell me your name. To which the young man yanked his shoes off, lifted up, lifted up his pants leg and said, you tell me, professor, you tell me. <laughs> Some of you won't get that until way later on. But here's the deal. Nobody likes to take a test that's unfair. Tests, the point of tests are supposed to accurately reveal what we know. Well, in Genesis 22, the text we're about to come to, God commands Abraham as a test to sacrifice his beloved son. And even though maybe you've heard this text, maybe for the thousandth time today, the command to sacrifice a son still seems ungodlike. Like, how could God ask someone to ever do that? This was the ultimate test of faith. Now, I'm going to tell us something that maybe you're not aware of about yourself. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but we are all a rather self-sufficient people. We are all a rather self-sufficient people, meaning that we look at the weaknesses of other people and we glory in our apparent strengths. We look at the foolish acts of others and we gloat in our wisdom. We look at the unrighteousness that is prevalent all around us and our chests swell with our own self-righteousness. So because of this, our Heavenly Father will do a very good thing for us. He will take us beyond our wisdom, beyond our strength, beyond our righteousness, and He will actually take us to a barren place of testing where He will test us. And He does this so that we will look to Him and trust Him alone so that we'll come to know that He is our wisdom. He is our strength. He is our righteousness. Listen, as much as trials can confound our wisdom, we have to believe that if you're going through a test today, God is doing a good thing. He's doing a loving thing. He's doing a wise thing in your life, whether you see it or not. Whether you even refuse to see it, God's still doing a good thing. So I want us to come this morning to this Old Testament text, and I want us to get ready to behold Jesus in it. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Like I said, the verses will also be on the screen. We're going to read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14 today. And this is a very familiar text, but I want to ask you to think about what this would be like hearing this for the first time. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as Jehovah Jireh. You are the Lord who, not not only have you provided, you are the one who is providing and will provide. We thank you for providing for our greatest need. We see some of that provision in this event, in the life of Abraham and Isaac. Lord, show us today, in the midst of a command that we don't understand, that we can't grasp, show us your faithfulness. Show us your goodness. Show us your promises. Show us, Lord, your fulfillment of those promises. Show us who you are. Just speak, O God, for we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So what is happening in the text that we just read is happening because of the will of God. God is willing this. And the word test that's used helps us kind of to understand God's intention. It's a word that refers to the tempering of metal. In order to make metal beautiful and and strong, it has to go through the fire. And this is what God is doing with Abraham, taking him through the fire. But let let me say this from the beginning. Although we know it's a test, Abraham didn't know it was a test. God didn't come to Abraham and say, Abraham, this is a a test. This is only a test. The emergency broadcast system is only a test. So don't you worry, Abraham. God didn't say that. Now, we know it's a test. He didn't know. And again, this is one of the most well-known and also most difficult passages in all of the Bible. Abraham is introduced to us in Genesis 12 as the one from whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed And we see, man, what a blessing that is. And then we arrive at Genesis 22, and we find that what started is God's call to Abraham to leave his home has now reached an absolute dramatic climax, the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. He is called to willingly sacrifice his son. This is the most, probably one of the most difficult and baffling things that God has ever asked one of his people to do. The pain and raw emotion of this moment is heightened by the fact that Abraham and his wife Sarah had waited 
waited and waited without seeing God's fulfillment of the promise. They waited 25 years from when God told Abraham, you will have a son, to where him and Sarah actually brought forth Isaac. But now that God had answered their prayers, given them a son, God now asked Abraham to do something that seems completely cruel and irrational. In fact, it brings irrational thoughts to us. Such thoughts as, what kind of God would ask anyone to do this? What kind of God must God be to ask this? In the flesh, we want to pull a Thomas Jefferson and get out our scissors and cut Genesis 22 completely out of our Bibles because it makes God, in our minds, look bad. Yet we can't. We answer this question by saying that this wasn't Abraham's first encounter with God. In fact, Abraham had come to know God. He'd come to know the character of God, and because of that, he had come to trust God. He had come to trust God in everything that God asked. Listen, when things get illogical in your life, when things don't make sense, when things get illogical, you must then get theological. When things don't make sense, bring God into the equation. And that's a great way to live all of our lives, God in the equation every moment. But there would also be more thought-provoking questions for Abraham. How will God create a people through the sacrifice of the one that he promised to build a nation through. So if Isaac dies, what happens to God's promises? The answer comes as we move, of course, from the life of Abraham to the life of Jesus. And we're going to get there, but first we're going to take time to interpret and to apply this text, and of course pointing us to Jesus. So four truths today, four things, three things that we must consider, one thing that we must behold. First is this. We must consider the command of God. Just take time in this moment to consider the command of God. In Genesis 12, God had asked Abraham to give up his past, so to move away from the the home he knew, to go to a place that God said, I'll tell you about when you get there. So to leave his past, now God asked Abraham to give up his future. It seems like every time God comes to Abraham, he's saying, leave somewhere, go somewhere, sacrifice something, or believe me for the impossible. Now, if that was us in today's world, anytime our phone rang and it said God, we would probably start hitting ignore because I don't know what's God going to ask me to do this time or next time. Yet Abraham kept answering the call. Abraham's relationship here is, is tested to an extraordinary degree in holding together the seeming contradiction between what one Old Testament theologian calls God's high promises of Abraham and God's dark commands to sacrifice him. What do you do with that contradiction of God's high promises and his dark commands? God touches the most sensitive nerve in in Abraham's life, Isaac, his son. Why? Because, again, all of God's promises were wrapped up in Isaac. All of them. All of God's promises would be fulfilled in Isaac, of course, pointing us to Jesus. But look back with me at chapter 22, verse 1. Let's walk through this together. After these things, God tested Abraham. Let me just stop for a second and say this. God will not tempt you. James 1 says that, but God will test his children. Now, the enemy will tempt you for evil, but God will test you for good. To take you through the fire, to purify you for sanctification that will become more and more like him. But God tests Abraham and said, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. 
And this response in the Hebrew is not, God, or not Abraham saying, here I am, God, hello. No, this saying, here I am, is a way of saying, I stand ready at your command. It's a picture of submission. What an amazing response from Abraham. I stand ready. What, what is your command? And then God says this, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The word son in Hebrew appears 11 times in the next four, or these 14 verses. For this child represented everything to Abraham. Now we know, of course, if you know the word of God, you know that Abraham had an older son, a son before Isaac named Ishmael. But here God comes and God says, take your son, your only son. So is, is God forgetful? Has God forgotten Ishmael? No. What God is saying in this moment is, Abraham, you only have one son that fulfills the promises that I made to you, and it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. So take your only son of promise, the one that you love. Just think about God saying that. I know you love your son. I know how much you love him. And then God said, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. Just think about the command of God here. Let's be very clear about what God was asking Abraham to do. I don't know if you know what a burnt offering is. God was asking Abraham to take and kill his son, so to stick a knife through his heart, then cut him into pieces and set him on fire, completely just doing everything to do away with him, just completely consuming all of him. That's what God was asking him to do. And Abraham faced two major issues in this moment. First of all, this seemed to be totally out of character for God to command a human sacrifice. Pagan religions did that, but up to this point in the worship of Yahweh, God had never asked this. In fact, God had previously and continues to put value on, on life, on value on human life. But the second picture is, if Isaac died, then all of God's promised blessings die with him. There would be no great nation from Isaac. Yet Abraham was certain what God had asked him to do. And, and here's what we know. Both of these issues went against everything that Isaac or Abraham wanted to do and Abraham understood. But God had spoken. Abraham would obey. And not just obey, he would obey Immediately. The next morning, he gets up and obeys immediately. In this heavy moment, there was no arguing. There was even no bargaining. Now, here's, I thought about this this week. If God were to come to me as a parent and say, sacrifice any of your children, here's my first thing going to be, God, God, take my life instead. Take me instead. God, I'll, I'll give up my life. I'll give it up right now. Take my life instead of my children's. There was no bargaining in that moment. And it wasn't because Abraham was selfish. It's because he was obedient. Only obedience. And don't miss the mountain here. This is the first time that Mount Moriah appears in the Bible, but it would not be the last. For this exact location where Abraham sacrificing Isaac would be the very future site of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So this would be the very site where people in Jerusalem would bring their sacrifices and then, 2,000 years after, at a location, some say 300 yards from this site, Jesus would be crucified. So God did not randomly choose Mount Moriah. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He wanted a place for sacrifice. 
Yet don't miss the command of God here. Let me just say this this morning to all of us, whether young or old. We might look at this command and go, how dare God? The God of this word has the right to ask you and myself to do anything he so chooses. He has the right to ask me to do anything. And I don't have the right to go, how dare you, God? We trust him. We trust him who asked us to do the things that we don't understand. But consider the command of God. Secondly, consider the promises of God. Consider the promises of God. Everyone is shocked by this verse, but to the attentive reader, it's even actually more shocking, not less, because we know who Isaac is. He's the offspring of Abraham. He is the hope of the world. Through Isaac would come all of God's blessings to the nations. On the screen, I have Genesis 12. So when God first came to Abram, he said this, The Lord said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. At this point, Abraham had zero children. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised that Abraham would have a son, and through that son would be a blessing to all nations. Of course, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. But after waiting 25 years, Sarah finally conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And picture, just just picture in this moment, Abraham holding baby Isaac. What do you have in that moment? You have the hope of the world. No Isaac, no Israel. No Israel, no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation for us. So whatever you do, Abraham, don't drop him. Like, hold him tight. He is the hope of the world. Don't let him go. He is the beginning of the fulfillment of all God's promises. And yet, in Genesis 22, God says, take that son and offer him as a burnt offering. Let me just remind us this morning that it is not our job to try to figure out things that God hasn't revealed. It's our job to obey the things that God has revealed. Our job to obey the things that God has revealed to us. Just think about what has been revealed. Did God promise Abraham a great nation through Isaac? Yes. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Yes. Was it a legitimate request in that moment? Yes. Did Abraham know how the story would end? No. Now, that's our problem. We read this story backwards. We read it and we go, yeah, we know he's not going to die. There's going to be a ram in, in the thicket. But sometimes we forget the weight of what God was asking. Abraham didn't know how the story would end. Abraham didn't know about the ram in the thicket. So the question becomes, what did he know? If he didn't know that, what did he know? And here's the answer. He knew what God had asked him to do. He knew that God had promised that he would give him a son that would be, bring blessings on the whole world. What he didn't know was how God would, rec- would reconcile that promise to give a son a blessing to all nations with this command to now take that son's life. And it's at this point that we see the, the faith of, of Abraham at its highest and at its best. And let me just emphasize this again because I think we need to hear this. It was not Abraham's job to keep God's promises for him. And it's not your job or my job to keep God's promises for him. God keeps his own promises. 
in his perfect timing, according to his perfect will. It's not my job to keep God's promises. God will keep his word. When we give ourselves to keeping God's command, and when we let God fulfill his own promises and his own timing, all will be well for us. It was Abraham's job to offer his son. It was God's job to keep his promises. And here's the point. When your faith is tested, and if you are a Christian in this room, your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tested often. But there will be some times where you feel like you have gone through the fire and nothing else could possibly be burnt up. And you go, how much longer, oh God? But when you are being tested, you must, we must, anchor our souls to the promises of God. For our God has said he will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things means our sin and all things means his test for our good. Abraham was able to endure the greatest trial of his life because he knew God and he knew God would would be sure to his word. Consider the promises of God. Third, consider the character of God. Consider the character of God. For you see the commandment here for God to give this commandment that he did. For God to tell Abraham to do what he was calling him to do. One of two things is true of God's character. Number one, either God is a maniacal, impulsive dictator who can't be trusted. I mean, think about this. He made Abraham and Sarah a promise. He provided a miracle. He gives them a baby, and then he says, kill it. If that is the ultimate truth here, then God is a maniacal, impulsive dictator that can't be trusted with anything in our lives. But let me say this. That's not how Abraham had experienced God up to this point. Or conclusion number two is God is faithful and can be trusted because he will always provide. God is faithful and can be trusted because he always provides. And that's how Abraham knew God to be faithful. A God who can always be trusted. Let me just read for you Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. If you want to turn there, you can. But in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, listen carefully to what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So it says that Abraham considered that God was able. The word consider there means compute, calculate, reason. He logically thought through. In fact, do you know what Abraham, or do you know what I believe Abraham was thinking about those three days when he journeyed from where he was to the Mount of Moriah? I believe in those three days he was rehearsing the promises of God. He was rehearsing the character of God. He was rehearsing the faithfulness of God. So much so that when his son said, Dad, where's the lamb? That he could just immediately say three powerful words, God will provide. And let me just say something for us today as children of God. If you will continually, in every area of your life, rehearse, remember the promises of God, the character of God, the faithfulness of God. When tests come into your life, as you have remembered those things, those three words will just come out of your mouth and fill your heart. God 
will provide. I don't know how he will. I don't know what he's up to, but he will provide. So Abraham marches up that hill. He binds up his son. He takes the knife. He's ready to plunge that knife into the heart of his son, considering the whole time who God is and what God can do. And the book of Hebrews says, the writer of Hebrews says, he even believed that if God asked him or or allowed him to go through with this, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Now, what an awkward Thanksgiving that would be the very next one. Dad, remember the time that you killed me and set my body on fire and God brought me back to life? I mean, that'd be awkward, right? I mean, as awkward as all, get out. But he was contemplating. Abraham was thinking God can do it. All Abraham knew was that God planned a future around Isaac. God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac. He couldn't reconcile the two, but he was going to obey God. And listen, what drove Abraham up that mountain with his son to sacrifice his son was not the thought, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. If that's the thought that drives you day in and day out, you are, you are so mistaken because you can't do much. What drove him up that mountain wasn't, I can do this. It was, God's going to do this. God's going to do something. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to do something. He's going to provide. Sure, this story is about amazing faith. It's the amazing faith of Abraham, but ultimately it's about the provision of God, meaning Abraham is not the hero of this story. God is. For God is the one who brings provision. He is Jehovah Jireh, the one who always provides. In fact, I love in the original Hebrew in in Genesis, the, the Hebrew is not the Lord will provide, it's the Lord will see to it. Think about that attribute of God. He is seeing to it, meaning he sees you right where you are. He knows everything that is going on in your life. He knows every detail of every trial that you are facing. And he is actively at this moment, always and forevermore, seeing and providing for our lives. This is our God. This is our God. This is his character. This is who he is. Consider the character of God. Which leads us lastly to this. Behold the Son of God. Behold the Son of God. If this whole series is about Jesus in the Old Testament, then we have to find him here. And think about this. Have you ever been to an eye doctor? And you go and you sit in the room. It's a dark room. They walk in. They put this thing in front of your, your eyes. And they begin to say, okay. They begin to click. Which is clear, number one or number two? One or two. Three or four. Three or four. Five or six. And if you're like me, they all look the same. There's no difference at all. So, but at the time, you begin to play mind games with yourself. It's like, well, I like two better than I like three or one. So two and three or four. Well, three is a perfect picture of God. So three, five or six. Well, five, you know, and you begin to... Just guess along the way. But when they get all of this information, they they do all this amazing thing. They put all these optics together. They place this thing in front of you, and they say, now read it. And all of a sudden, you're like, I can read it. I, I can see clearly what's in front of me. And that's what this set of verses does. It's like now through Jesus, the whole sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, get this, it makes sense. It makes sense. It means something else. It's not, it's not just pointing to Abraham's sacrifice. It's pointing to a future perfect sacrifice. 
It's more than just a painful experience that Abraham had to walk through. It's a picture of something else. It points to a bigger story. It points to the gospel. Don't miss it. If you suspiciously read through the Bible and go, I can't trust that kind of God, or if you just read fast through it because you just want an easier pill to swallow, you're going to miss the stunning parallels, the stunning types between Isaac and Jesus. Let me just show you the parallels here between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice on his back. Jesus carried the cross on his back on the way to Calvary. Isaac was bound and led to the altar by his father. Jesus was bound and led to the cross, for that was his life's mission. Isaac was described as Abraham and Sarah's beloved and only son. Centuries later, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father would say of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because of Abraham's obedience, the angel of the Lord promised in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, meaning Isaac, because you have obeyed my command. All the nations will be blessed. Because of Christ's obedience, according to Revelation 5, he purchased people for God by his blood from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Let's, let's keep going. Both Isaac and Jesus were sons of promise. Promises were made of their coming. Both Isaac and Jesus were named by angels before their birth. Both Isaac and Jesus were born of women who could not have conceived apart from a miracle. Sarah was 90 years old. Mary, a virgin. Miracles. Both Isaac and Jesus willingly offered themselves. And here's what we miss. We think of this story and we, we see it in our minds and we think of, of Abraham holding the hand of his little small son, Isaac, and taking him up. But most scholars believe that Isaac was in his 20s. Why? Because he was able to carry the wood for the sacrifice. But think about this. I, I, don't, I don't do a lot of betting, but if there's a fight between a 20-year-old and a 120-year-old, I'm putting my money on the 20-year-old. Unless guns are involved, then maybe it's a little different. But I'm taking the 20-year-old in that moment. So what we gather from this is that Isaac didn't struggle. He surrendered himself to his father because he trusted the God that his father served. When his dad said, God told me to, Isaac said, yes, sir, here I am. In the same way, Jesus offered himself as a willing sacrifice. Both Isaac and Jesus asked questions at the moment of their sacrifice. Isaac, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaac was brought back from the dead figuratively, and Jesus was brought back from the dead literally. But these stories diverge at a critical juncture. Isaac's life was ultimately spared Many scholars believe by Jesus himself. And what I mean by that is this. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when you hear the words, angel of the Lord, it speaks of Jesus coming in a powerful, angelic way. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham, stops him from taking the son's life, and then immediately begins to speak on behalf of the Lord. So most scholars believe that Jesus himself stepped in and said, you can't kill your son because it's not his job to die, it's mine. 
Think about the beauty of that. Isaac was ultimately spared, but for Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket. For Jesus, there was no substitute for his life. God the Father went through what Abraham only had to contemplate and confront. God actually, literally sacrificed his son. Listen, when God's hand was raised at Calvary to put the knife in the heart of Jesus, there was no one to yell, no, don't hurt the child. There was no ram in the thicket that day. Because according to John 1, when John the Baptist in John 1 sees Jesus coming, he says, and you see it on the screen, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later on, a few verses later, in verse 36, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Don't miss this one. This is the one. This is, Isaac asked the question, where is the Lamb? John the Baptist is answering the question, he's here. Behold the Lamb of God of God. Don't miss him. So that when Abraham lifted up the knife, all of heaven must have marveled at how much a man could love God. Yet when God sacrificed his son at the cross, all of heaven had to marvel at how much God loved man. To put it in a different way, in Genesis 22, we see what man will do for the love of God. But at the cross, we see what God will do the love of us what God will do because he loves us I want to land here with the title of this message Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide let me say this the Lord provided for Abraham that day and for Isaac and giving a ram in the thicket the Lord has provided for you and me if you are a child of God in this room your greatest need has been provided I don't know what you see your greatest need as today, but I can assure you this. Your greatest need is not health. Your greatest need is not some relationship. Your greatest need is not a bunch of stuff and money. Your greatest need is salvation. And if you don't have that, then your greatest need is still unfulfilled and will never be fulfilled until you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But if you have done so, God has met your greatest need. But not only does God, in his grace and mercy, meet our greatest needs, he also meets every other need of our lives. He will provide for everything else. In fact, I want to put one more verse on the screen. It's a verse that we looked at a few months ago in our study through Romans. But in Romans 8, in Romans 8, it says this. Paul is writing, and he says, he asks a question. He says, he who did not spare his own son. He's pointing back to Abraham and Isaac because Abraham got to spare his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? Brothers and sisters, what that means is this. Because God gave the ultimate for you and for me, God will give everything else that you need. Not everything you want. If you pray to God, he's not going to give you that Mercedes, so you can put hashtag bless on the back. No, he'll give you everything that you need in every moment of your life in perfect timing. And let me say this, if you don't have it right now, it's because you don't need it right now. Because when you need it, you'll have it. You'll have it. Because he is the one who provides. But will we give to him what Abraham did? I want to close by asking you to do this. I want you to put just one hand out just like this. And I want you to think about the palm of your hand because every single one of us, what we have is there are certain things in our lives Certain things in our lives that 
are the nerve of our lives, are the heartbeat of our lives. Everything about our lives is, is found in that thing or those things, family, jobs, relationships, people. And I want you to do this. I want you to close your hand, and I want you to think about how, how tight are you willing to, to hold, to hold on to those things? Some of us, our knuckles begin to get really white because it's like, I'll never, I'll never let go of those things. Listen, what I'm not saying is this. God's not going to ask you to sacrifice your children. But what God is going to say is this. Will you hold loosely to those things to allow me to do what I want to do in and through them? Because if you're holding tightly, I can't get to them. If you're not giving them to me, I can't do what I want to do. But will you hold loosely to the things of the world so that I can be that provision for you in every moment of your life. Oh, that we will. Oh, that we'll see the beauty of Christ today and we'll see the provision of God today through Christ, but in every area of our lives. Now, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the musicians down this morning and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever God is saying in this moment, this is a place of freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So whatever God is saying in this moment, obey. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God, that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the one who has provided for us. You are providing for us. And praise be to you, you will provide. Well, I pray for anyone in this room, or anyone watching online that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of having their greatest need met. Their need for salvation met. Jesus in you. Meet that need as people call out to you, oh God, to save them. But also, Lord, show us as your children that we can trust you. If, God, if you did not withhold your son from us, but gave him freely, God, how can we not trust you to meet our every single need? God, how can we trust you for the greatest and then act like we can't trust you for the, the lesser. Lord, help us to trust you more. Jehovah Jireh, the one who will provide. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.